Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory. I teach Southeast Asian History at the University of Queensland, Australia, and I'm co-host of this channel. Now, most people know Angkor Wat as one of the world's great temple mausoleums, but fewer people know about one of Angkor's most famous statues, a giant figure of the reclining Vishnu, the largest bronze figure ever cast in medieval Southeast Asia. The figure was discovered in 1936 at the West Mebon Island Temple in the West Burai, this enormous man-made lake at Angkor. In her book, Reconstructing God, Style, Hydraulics, Political Power and Angkor's West Mebon Vishnu, published by National University of Singapore Press, Marnie Fennelly pieces together the puzzle of the origin and meaning of this spectacular image. Using the latest archaeological evidence, some ingenious art history detective work, the epigraphical evidence, radiocarbon dating and digital 3D visualisation technology, Fennelly makes a striking argument that the image expressed a theory of power that connected Vaishnavism, Cambodian kingship and the control of water resources at a time when Angkor was at its height. Today I'm talking to the book's author, Mani Fenley. Mani is president of the Association of Mainland Southeast Asian Scholars and honorary lecturer at the University of New South Wales. Mani, thanks so much for coming on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to talk about your book, which I understand is hot off the press. That's right. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you for having me. Yes, the book is in the press at the moment being printed. The subject of the book is a spectacular bronze image of a reclining Vishnu found at one of Angkor's famous temples, the West Mebon Island Temple. Can you tell the listener how you got interested in this particular topic? Yes, so I was very interested in Angkor and as a result, uh, as after my long career working in museums and galleries as a curator and art historian, I I decided to study specifically something to do with Angkor and that put me in touch with Roland Fletcher and the Greater Angkor Project team, the GAP project, which in 2005 they were doing a project on the West Mebon and in conjunction with APSARA and that's the Angkor Authority and also the EFEO, École Française d'Extreme Orient, who were the French organisation who've been looking after the monuments for a very long time. And so there was a combined project at the Mabon at that time looking, going into the middle of the Mabon, which is an island in the middle of the West Barai. And the West Barai is one of the largest, well, it's the largest man-made reservoir at Angkor. Uh, situated in the middle of that large reservoir is a small water shrine which was in ruins at the time and in the middle of that water shrine was two wells, two shafts, in one of which was the place where the Vishnu was found. So that sculpture had been found in 1936. It was, I will tell you the story of how that sculpture was found uh, a bit later on, But the pieces of the sculpture were put in a Hessian sack and they were at that time in 2005 underneath the museum in Phnom Penh in a a box. And I went to Phnom Penh at that time and 
organized to have all the pieces brought up. There were around 40 pieces and fragments, various fragments of metal. And I cataloged all those pieces and documented them. It's a fascinating story, which we'll get on to in a minute. But before we get to that story, it's a, it's a very impressively researched book. It makes use of many different kinds of evidence. Before we get into the content of the book, can you tell us about the process of how you went about researching the book? So it's a, it, it's a very complex project and it's taken many, many years to come to fruition and for the book to be published. As I said, I started in 2005 and there were just a great deal of moving parts to this project. So first of all, we had the archaeology of the Mabon itself, so the shrine and water shrine in which the sculpture was found. So the archaeology had to be researched and that was done in conjunction with the Greater Ankle Project team at the University of Sydney and also Apsara, and and then there were the fragments of the sculpture and the head and shoulders, which are still on display in the National Museum of Phnom Penh, and those fragments all needed documenting and in, in various ways and then piecing together. And then there was the iconography of the sculpture, which was hard to piece together because we didn't have the complete sculpture. Uh, Once we looked at all the fragments, it seemed that about 60% of the sculpture was missing. And so it was important to look at that particular kind of iconography or murti of Vishnu, which was a Vishnu in Antisayan, which I'll describe a bit later on. And then to look at how that particular kind of religion and that religious iconography came to Cambodia. How did that kind of iconography arrive in Angkor and why was such a large and um, extraordinary sculpture of Vishnu? And the bronze sculpture of Vishnu would have been covered in gold, by the way, and also probably bejeweled and would have been floating in the middle of this island in the middle of a barai. And how did that come to be in Angkor? This is a religion that, of course, had its origins in India. And then how was it changed? You know, how how did that particular kind of iconography, if you like, how did it evolve and change within a Cambodian, a Khmer context? So all those different things were really important. And then looking at the history that surrounded the sculpture and the temple, what do we know about the history of that particular time and how did that help us to date the sculpture as well as looking at the iconography of the sculpture? So there were a vast number of different components to this project which are outlined in the book. In one sense, the book is a kind of detective story, the way I read it anyway. It's, it starts off when parts of this statue are discovered in 1936. Can you tell us the story? Oh, yes, it's a terrific story, Patrick. It's part myth, part fact. So in 1936, if the listeners can imagine what it would have been like in um, Siem Reap in Cambodia in 1936, the whole of Cambodia was under the French protectorate. So it was a colonised Cambodia. The École Française d'Extreme Orient was in charge of all the temples, of which there are very many temples on on the Angkor Plain. And they had heard rumours of gold and jewels being sold in the marketplace in Siem Reap. And the archaeologists put out a, a notice to say that anyone who was caught looting the temples, especially around the Mabon area, would suffer the consequences. Probably as a result of that notice, uh, a villager, when we have his name, his name was Chitlat, came to 
the AFEO with a large thumb, which obviously had come from a massive sculpture. And he said to him that the Buddha had appeared to him in a dream and asked him to be released from this grave of earthen stones. And so the archaeologists, Ori Mashal and Maurice Glaze, went to across the water to the, the West Mabon in the middle of the West Barai and to this little water shrine. And there to the centre of the water shrine they found buried a metre beneath the surface of obviously disturbed dirt. The head and shoulders of the Vishnu buried face down and when they lifted that out, it was an enormous piece of the sculpture, only the head and shoulders and torso of the sculpture was there. Underneath were all the other fragments placed carefully and carefully in the hole. And then when they brought those out, they had around 40 fragments and other debris that's catalogued as. Those fragments were then taken across to the conservation where they were kept for a number of years and then eventually they were taken down to Phnom Penh and they were stored in the museum. So it's a it's a fascinating story and we have to be grateful to Chidlat for letting the archaeologists know because this is one of the only times that we, you know, with all the looting that goes on in Cambodia and has gone on over the years, it's so important that we know what the site was where the sculpture was found because in that way we can look at the context and history of the sculpture and if that sculpture had been looted, we wouldn't have any context for it and we wouldn't be able to have researched it in the way that we have. For the, the listener, can you paint a visual picture of this spectacular sculpture as you believe it existed in its original form? Yes, so one of the pieces that I had to put together, one of the aspects that I had to research once I started to look into the sculpture was what was the iconography of this sculpture originally. Originally, even the archaeologists themselves, when they pulled the head and shoulders out of the ground, they actually said, um, you know, this must have been the sculpture of a king. And at first they thought it was a Buddha, but they then realised that it was actually a sculpture of Vishnu as they saw the other pieces and they started to put together the fragments of the sculpture that they could. I think immediately they could see that one piece was an arm and they attached that back on. The sculpture itself, just I don't think I've mentioned, would have been over six metres long. We don't have the feet, so we can't be sure, but probably around six metres long. And so it's it's an enormous bronze sculpture and it would have been cast in fragments Importantly for the iconography of the sculpture, we actually had also in the archaeology some hands were found, some smaller hands that didn't belong to the larger sculpture. So we knew that there were other parts of the conglomeration which made the iconography. So there were other actual smaller figures within the sculptural iconography. So one of the important things was to look at what sort of sculpture was this, what depiction of Vishnu was this. And this is a depiction of Vishnu Anantasayan. So Anantasayan means floating on the cosmic ocean. So I think it's important to, to go here to explain what that means, Vishnu Anantasayan. I'll just describe for the listeners what that would be. So Vishnu Anantasayan is, is a, a Brahmanic creation myth about Vishnu creating the universe. So the myth is that Vishnu originally is floating in the cosmic ocean. He's asleep and then he becomes aware and awake and he's floating on Ananta, who's the Naga snake. And the reason why he 
becomes aware and awake and aware in that sense creates the universe is his feet are being massaged by his consort who is called Lakshmi and Lakshmi massaging the, the feet of Vishnu brings him into consciousness at which point from his navel a uh, lotus grows and the lotus grows and flowers and sitting on the lotus is a four-headed god called Brahma. So Brahma is born from the lotus, from the navel of Vishnu, and when Brahma becomes aware of Vishnu, he emits the sound Om, and by by emitting the sound Om, Brahma creates the world. So this is a magnificent creation story, which is very, very complicated, and there are also, of course, many different versions of this. And we see the whole myriad of these versions in the bas reliefs of the Khmer Empire. So you'll see them often over the doorways of the temples. You'll see a different version of this. And the earlier versions differ from the later versions. And and it was this iconography that I used to piece together how the sculpture would have looked. In your discussion of the history of Angkor at that time, you refer to a famous contemporary account of Angkor in the 13th century written by a Chinese envoy uh, to Angkor called Zhao Daguan. And your book suggests that in this account, there is a section which seems to refer to a reclining Vishnu. Is this the same image that you are writing about in, in the book? Scholars have thought that that's the case. And Jotaquan was an ambassador or emissary from China who was present in Angkor during the 13th century. And in that time, he talked about various aspects of Cambodian life. And he did mention that there was a, a sculpture that was Ten Li from the city centre, but located in the East Barai, and that it was a sculpture of a Buddha. But as no sculpture, reclining sculpture, has been found in the East Barai, only in the West Barai, it's generally thought that he might have got the directions wrong. Or, In fact, by that time, if you think about it, the sculpture would have been in place for a very long time and it may well have not been there and been the stuff of legend. But certainly during its own time, such a massive gilded sculpture would have been known by the local population and worshipped by the local population. Of course, sculpture was worshipped in situ and it was dressed and flowers were brought to it. It was woken in the morning and put to sleep at night. They had dancers and priests that um, attended to them and sculptures were thought of as living deities. And I think that's a really important part of looking at Cambodian sculpture and sculpture in Southeast Asia, that sculpture has a presence because it's considered to have a, a life force. And that can sometimes, in the, in, the, in the epigraphy, you can see that at times people might commission a sculpture and that sculpture it may contain the vra, an, an ancient Khmer word, or the, the essence of, the subtle body of the person as well as the god. So a sculpture can actually contain part of a human and a god's spirit at the same time. And this was really important in terms of the Khmer Empire because the centre of empire was a sculpture. So each king who ruled Angkor actually had their own they raised a deity, a sculpture to the, their own presence. So for a king like Uday Dichuvaman II, he raised a golden linger 
And when that linga was raised, it was considered to be the centre of the Angkorian Empire. So, for example, when when Angkor was moved, when the centre of the Khmer Empire was moved to Koker earlier, the royal linga was moved as well. So the centre of empire was a royal sculpture of some kind, whether that was a linga or whether that was a sculpture of Vishnu depended on the king. And another, sorry, Patrick, just just to, another interesting thing to follow on from that is that that's why we don't have very many bronze sculptures because so many times the if if an empire was conquered, so for example, there's an example of a sculpture called Po Nagar that was in Champa, which was it's now current day Vietnam, and that sculpture in the epigraphy it talks about that they constantly had the Khmer coming down and they'd take the sculpture of Ponagar and they would melt it down. And they actually talk about melting the bronze of the enemy and taking the power away from the enemy into their new effigy. So so the conquering nation would actually take the bronze of that sculpture and include it in a new sculpture raised to their own gods. And so constantly... Also, during the ritual process of making these sculptures, offerings were made for merit-making. So, for example, people would bring jewellery or they'd bring old sculptures or broken sculptures and all these things would be put into the mix, into the bronze, and that would actually create the new sculpture. And those offerings were seen as merit-making or gaining credits for heaven, if you like, and also empowering the God with spiritual force. So so it's really important when looking at analysing the metal of bronze sculptures, which is uh, something that's been done a lot lately in, sci- in the science of analysing sculptures, that it's understood that these sculptures were made of a mix of metals and that there were many pious offerings included in the ritual make- ritualistic making of the bronzes. Yeah, I found the discussion of the religious history of Angkor really fascinating. You go into it in, in quite a bit of detail. We, we know that Hinduism and Mahayana Buddhism were, were influential in the Angkorian Empire, but you b- break it down into particular cults, in particular the this rivalry, apparent rivalry between Shaivism or the worship of the god Shiva and Vaishnavism or the worship of the god Vishnu. And your book seems to argue that this particular image is evidence of a resurgence of Vaishnavism in Angkor in the, I think it's the 12th century, under one of Angkor's greatest kings, Surya Bharaman II. Why is this argument important? Yes, I think I need to clarify there that I actually think that that rivalry between Shaivism and Vaishnavism wasn't common. I mean, certainly from the very early days of the Khmer Empire and even, you know, the the, the inception of religious iconography from Brahmanic periods, sort of Sanskrit and religious religions coming from India into the Mekong Delta and then up into Ankhbarai, where you see evidence of Vishnu, there was always... It's it's argued that it's not syncretic, but there was always worship of all three religions. So there was always Shaivism, Vaishnavism, a certain kind of Vaishnavism, and and Buddhism. And those they were actually quite contemporaneous with each other, and in some cases actually within the one sculpture. So for example, you have this sculpture called Harihara, this god called Harihara, which is 
is known in India but very was popular at a certain time in Cambodia in the in the early sort of uh, 7th century 6th 7th century and Harihara is a mixture of Vishnu and Shiva so on one side he's uh, Vishnu and on and he'll have uh, the attributes of Vishnu and on the other side he'll be Shiva so he'll have the ascetic hair of Shiva and even the half of the third eye of Shiva and so this was actually quite common so all of these three religions were worshipped at, at one time or another Vaishnavism was certainly stronger in the early period so you find Vaishnavite sculptures from around the third century down in the Mekong Delta and certainly more commonly and associated with kingship around the seventh century and you have quite extraordinary sculptures are found at Phnom Dah and around Angkor Barai of just ex- exquisite and very large sculptures of Vishnu. And then as the agrarian culture became stronger around Angkor, so the population moved further north and to an area that was just above the Tonle Sap Lake, which we know as Angkor, which is a vast plain. And Angkor consists now of around two. 2,000 temples, and behind Angkor is the Kulin Range. So as the population moved into that area, Shaivism became dominant in terms of the religion in Angkor that was worshipped by the kings. But there'd always be a dominant religion worshipped by the kings, and then other religions were always welcome as well. So And, and certain sites, certain areas were related to certain religious um, affiliations. So the kings would often also raise a sculpture to those sites and those religious affiliations. Another thing that happened was you can see in the epigraphy that sometimes these were actually uh, land grabs or land grants and taxation corvée or relief and at times an older effigy or sculpture would be united with a new effigy or sculpture and what was actually happening was on one side you'd have these these rituals and poetry dedicated to these effigies, dedicated to these gods, and on the other side you'd have what land was then granted to that temple or ashram. So these these were actually basically legal documents and the sculptures were part of the legal process as were the temples. Okay, so we know that the, the origin of these Brahmanical cults was in India, but in, the, in your book you make a strong argument that these cults are indigenized into you know, Angkorian, Cambodian culture. Can you explain what you mean? Yes, yeah, so I think one of the really interesting things about these sort of the, the transmission of, of religions from India into, into Cambodia in the early period in the Mekong, you get sort of waves of these cultures along these very active maritime routes and but there was already a very strong civilization a very strong religious culture in Cambodia and so those animist beliefs and and the hierarchy that existed amongst different leaders well they took on these indic ideas but they made them into something other something that was their own and an example that i give in the book about this which was really important in terms of looking at the sculpture is that the particular iconography of Vishnu and Antisayan, where Vishnu is, as I said before, lying, sleeping, and then resting on his elbow on the snake Ananta and floating on the primordial water. 
Well, what happened in Cambodia was that this was changed and that change actually happened in the 11th century, just around the time when this very large bronze and gilded sculpture of Vishnu was found in the West Mabon or would have been commissioned for the West Mabon. So the really interesting thing is that at this time and towards the 12th century, there was a a change in the iconography where the Naga snake became a dragon and this dragon was has been affiliated with different mythical beasts such as perhaps a what's known as a gaja simha which you see in india and a gaja simha has an elephant trunk but the body of a crocodile and it's associated with aquatic iconography so the idea of water so it also in the khmer version of this it has these uh, stubby sort of crocodile-like legs and occasionally lion-like legs. And in the 12th century, it becomes extremely popular. And in actual fact, what happens is it completely replaces the naga. At first, the naga is diminished and it's lying still along the back of this gigantic dragon-like beast. And Vishnu is lying on top of the diminished naga. And then what happens is eventually, sort of in the mid-12th century, the naga actually jumps off the back of the Richache dragon, which is the name of this composite creature, and it, it's actually arcing up and biting towards the dragon's mouth. So you get this iconography where there's a fight between the Richache and the naga snake. And the interesting thing there is that the Garuda is the mount of Vishnu, the traditional mount of Vishnu, and the enemy of the Garuda is traditionally the naga. Is really no way of knowing how this came about. But what I did find really fascinating was that in the funeral procession of King Norodom Sihanouk, which was a very important ceremony, of course, where there were floats that went around in a procession around Phnom Penh, there were three floats and they each had a different iconography. So the float that carried Hun Sen, the president of Cambodia, was a naga. And the float that carried the Buddhist monks who were presiding over the funeral was, in fact, a Garuda or a phoenix. And the float that carried a photograph of King Norodom Sinuk was actually a Richache. So it was this dragon creature. And I was able to get in touch with the head of the Buddhist monks who had actually organised and understood the um, symbolism of the ceremony. And he told me that this was a royal lion. And then when I also looked into the language, into the the name of the Richache, which is Raja Shri, it's like royal lion. And so there is this inference that this creature actually is related to royalty. So it was really interesting to then put that together with the other research, looking at the iconography and development of Vishnu and Antisayan, and seeing how the Naga was replaced by this dragon or Richache or royal lion. So obviously there's some relation there between the iconography and royalty. One of the central arguments of the book is about the dating of this particular reclining Vishnu image. And you use a, a range of uh, evidence and arguments, as well as some new technologies, to pose a new date for a later period for the construct, construction of that image. It's a later period than previous scholars have estimated. Can you explain that argument and tell us why it's provocative? 
Yes, so it's important to explain here how I did this. Another aspect of piecing together the, if you like, the research is I took the pieces of the of the Vishnu and each piece I made a photogrammetric model of these pieces and then floated them onto, in a digital form, onto a wire frame of the iconography, which we'd worked out from looking at all the, the lintels. I, I think I gathered together around I think there were a hundred over a hundred examples of this kind of iconography across what had been the Khmer Empire that I gathered together in a database and put on a timeline and so using that data I then made a wire frame and floated the pieces of what we had left of the of the Vishnu onto the wire frame now some of those pieces gave up some really interesting clues as to how we might date the sculpture. One in particular was the the sampot of the sculpture. And with Cambodian sculpture and the Vishnu had always been dated to the mid-11th century to the King Udayudichivaman II. And that was because the outer walls of the, the West Mabon Temple were Bapuan style or uh, related to it traditionally to Udayudichivaman II. And so the Bapuan style of sculpture, you would expect to have a certain kind of look. So the sampot would come down below the navel and the sampot would be very tight around the legs and it would be lined with tiny pleats. And this is without fail in the bronze sculptures. You see this kind of iconography. And the really interesting thing and the thing that I wasn't prepared for, it didn't expect was that when we identified the actual piece of the back and the torso and the sampot, it was obvious having the belt of the sampot, but then the fabric seemed to be plain without pleats. And this was really interesting. So this was one aspect that would make this an anomaly in terms of the Bapuan style of, of iconography, of what how we would establish what was a Bapuan sculpture. And there were a subset of sculptures that seemed to belong to the Vishnu in particular. So these sculptures are lined or are traditionally known as the Mahidharapura sculptures. So tracking back to why they're called the Mahidharapura sculptures, after Udayudichivaman there was a period of many years where there were wars and various kings in place until the Mahidharapura came in from the Dangret Ranges, which is now located in Thailand. And they actually came down to Angkor and took over and took control of Angkor. But the first two kings, Jayavarman VI and his uncle, they didn't rule from Angkor. It was only when the nephew, Surivarman II, came in in 1113 that he took control of Angkor and started a big building program. So stylistically, the sculptures that go with this time period tend to all have these similar attributes and they have this very fine-lined, beautifully made sculptures with very fine-lined sampots and particular kinds of jewellery. And although the West Mabon Vishnu sits with those sculptures, it also tends to divert a little from those sculptures as well because it's much larger. These sculptures tend to be a bit smaller than life-size, whereas, of course, the West Mabon Vishnu is much larger. The sandpot isn't lined and the jewellery tends to sit more towards the Angkor Wat style period, which we associate with Suruvarman II. So just 
make sure I've got this correct. So Suri of Amman II, he's he's the king who initiated the, the building of, of Angkor Wat. And you're proposing that he was a guy who also had this huge uh, Vishnu image constructed. Do I have that right? Yes. Basically, traditionally, the West Mibon Vishnu has always been associated with the king Udayadichivaman II, who supposedly built the Bapuan, raised a Shaivite linga in his temple, the Bapuan, but also raised a golden linga on the, the Kulen Ranges, which are behind Angkor. And that's a, an area we haven't talked about, but the Kulen Ranges are very important in terms of the sanctification of water, uh, which then flows down into the canals and into Angkor and into the big Barai. So on the Kulin Range are many, many small shivalingas and also many depictions of Vishnu and Antisayan carved in through the rocks. And, and they start around the 11th century, but also progress into the 12th century and probably onwards a bit further than that. So there were ashrams up there and hermits lived up there. And, and that was a very sacred area. Udayudichivaman definitely was Shaivite. He definitely erected a golden linga up on the Kulin Ranges and he is supposed to have also built the West Mibon. When we, the archaeologists in 2005 looked into the Mibon itself, they found that the, there seemed to have been two consecrations in that Mibon. So there possibly was a giant lingam originally placed in the centre of the Mabon itself. So that was really interesting. They found uh, in more recent excavations what seemed to be a giant pillar that had been just smashed into many, many pieces and scattered all over the island. They started to put those together and the idea was that that perhaps sat as a giant lingam within the Mabon itself and the temple was shaped like a yoni, which is the female part of the male-female Shaivite yoni and Shivalinga, so that that was perhaps smashed and another sculpture put in its place. At that time, the University of Sydney, and this is in 2005, took a core sample of the pond in the middle of the water shrine and found that during the early 12th century that the water shrine had been cleaned and restored because they found that the, the vegetation stopped at that point so they think that it had been cleaned and restored, which fits with the idea that perhaps this shrine was taken over, cleaned, restored, and another sculpture put in its place, which would therefore have been the Vishnu, which would make it later than Udayadichivaman II and more likely to be affiliated with Suryavaman II in 1113 when he came to power. He started to build Angkor Wat. It took 35 years to build and it wasn't finished during his lifetime. So it's very possible that to claim a Barai or have his own uh, stamp on Angkor and claim that sacred water system that starts at the Kulen and comes through the entirety of Angkor and down into the Tonlesap Lake, it, which is the lifeblood of Angkor, that he put his iconography in the middle of the Barai would make sense. And it's not far from Angkor Wat. In fact, it's in the middle, Angkor Wat is placed in the middle between the East and West Barai. And an, an interesting side fact is that the Angkor Wat moat is actually in two pieces. It's, it originally, it was actually separated into two parts, the north and the south, and it was the French punched a hole through 
the bridge so that the water would flow right through both parts and therefore remain full all the time all year round. Prior to that, perhaps it was that the East Barai, the water came into one section and the West Barai, the water came into another section, joining the two together. Um, Of course, this is an interesting idea, but I don't think anyone's written about that yet. In a podcast, generally, we focus on the arguments uh, in the book, but I have to say that visually, this is an extremely attractive book. Uh, listeners will have to uh, take my word for this, but uh, it contains, you know, really beautiful, many beautiful high-resolution photos of the of the reclining Vishnu image itself, and many other related images. The various forms of ornamentation, the various archaeological sites in Angkor, and these digital reconstructions of these images that you you touched on uh, a minute ago. And I was wondering if you could perhaps go into a little bit more detail there. I was just fascinated by the the use of technology that you show in the book in reconstructing this image. And of course, the title of the book is Reconstructing God. And once you sort of get into the book, you realize, oh, I can see why it's titled this, because of course, you, as you said in the beginning, you've just found these these few fragments of, of this image. And then through this, you know, as I say, really, I think, ingenious use of various kinds of evidence, you make a really convincing argument for how the image would originally have have looked like. But integrating these or using these new you know, modern technologies, could, could you say a little bit more about the use of, of those technologies in, in writing the book? Oh, yes. Oh, thank you. Yes, it is a really image-heavy book. <laughs> There's, I think, how many? 210 figures. And it took a lot of putting together. But the technology grew as the project grew because I started in 2005. And as this was a new technology in those days. And, and so as the project developed, the technology developed and I was able to revisit some things and redo them with new technologies. So, for example, originally in 2005 I photographed the pieces, but I went back in 2011 I was able to make photogrammetric models of the pieces. And photogrammetric models are when you take a clear photograph of uh, an object from many, many different angles, and then you process that through a, a software which develops a mesh which is then textured. And so you get a complete twin, if you like, of the object that you had actually originally photographed. And, and the advantage of this is that you can spin it around, you can move it within a digital program. And as I said, you can float it onto a wire frame. So I was able to actually use the frame, but then get a much better idea of how to manipulate these pieces and which are then to scale as well. And the the really interesting thing with that is that, you know, things were unexpected. You know, you'd think a piece might fit on the left thigh. And in fact, when you got it there, you realized the sandpot line was going the wrong way. And it was possible to flip it around and try it in a different position. And this is much easier than lifting, you know, huge blocks of bronze that took three people to lift up the stairs. And these are very heavy, some of them very heavy fragments, some of them were quite small as well. But it was a much more beneficial way to actually create the sculpture to try and put it back together again. And the other aspect to that was it was possible to look into different iterations of the sculpture. So once we had all the fragments put in place and we had the iconography put in place, then we could try and put the sculpture back in the West Mabon because we had the early French photographs of the towers and the ruins of the West Mabon. 
before it had become more degraded. So in 1936, there was a lot more there than there was, say, in 2005. And so we were able to create in a program the Mabon itself, and even to the point where we were able to get the exact lotus because we had the core sample I told you about earlier actually identified the kind of lotus that was in the pond. So using archaeology and using photographs and using the digital reconstruction, it was possible to put those things all back together and to get an idea of how the sculpture might have looked in place in the Mabon way back in the 12th century. And that was really exciting because then I could make a 3D immersive of that. So I did actually make a 3D immersive of the actual Mabon. So so to the viewer, you would actually feel like you were walking up and around the sculpture. And um, this I've created and I used to take my students to come. I'd tell them about the Mabon and then we'd go and visit it <laughs> in 3D, in a 3D immersive. And so just for people, if they're interested in buying the book and then having a look at this, there will be a website and I'll have the pieces, the fragments available for people to look at and research themselves and also the 3D immersive there'll be a, a fly through of that so you can have a look at how that looked. Yeah the as I say the listeners will just have to trust us on this but there is one image towards the end of the book I think where you have the fully reconstructed image this beautiful gilded statue of the reclining Vishnu in the the temple as you reconstructed it, it the way it, uh, it was supposed to really look like and it's just really spectacular. You know there's a lot of you talk about the digital humanities sometimes the results aren't quite as impressive but this is I thought was actually quite spectacular you really kind of feel it just kind of feels so real and I think that that's one of the you know the fantastic aspects of the book sadly Marnie we're we're, we're coming towards the end but we have a traditional question that we ask the interviewees uh, having completed what sounds like a very long and arduous project and are you working on a new project and could you uh, tell us what that project is Oh, yes. Thank you, Patrick. I am working on a new project. So following on from the work I did on the Vishnu, I worked on a project with Professor Sarah Kenderdine and we did the Atlas of Maritime Buddhism, where we looked at the transmission of Buddhism from India to China along the maritime routes. And that fitted in with my early interest in the transmission of, of Vaishnavism into Cambodia along those maritime routes. And so then we did a show which was in Hong Kong in 2021. And following on from that, the next project we're working on together will be this uh, show on Gupta sculpture, which we're looking at doing st- kicking off in August. And we're looking at digital twinning of Gupta sculpture. So digital twinning is going back to that idea of the photogrammetric modeling. So we're putting together a database of photogrammetric models of important early Indian sculpture which we'll curate into exhibitions and so that's that's the next project I'm working on which is fascinating and of course those really early Indian sculptures it's lovely to look at the iconography of those and also reflect on on the iconography of early Cambodian sculptures and and see the similarities and differences. That sounds exciting and I think everyone will be looking forward to seeing the results of that project. Marnie Fennelly, thanks so much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, Reconstructing God, Style, Hydraulics, Political Power and Angkor's West Mebon Vishnu, published this year in 2023. It's actually just about to come out by National University of Singapore Press. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you very much for having me. 
And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. As always, thanks everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this episode uh, and you're interested in other podcasts about Angkor and Cambodia, you might enjoy listening to Ashley Thompson talking about her book, Engendering the Buddhist State, Territory, Sovereignty and Sexual Difference in the Inventions of Angkor, published by Rutledge back in 2016. You can download or stream this interview and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network or iTunes. Music